Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings, and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom Estate. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. the most militant opponents of Booker T. Washington's philosophy of accommodation, a heroic fighter against discrimination, and the person who had more to do with originating and carrying out a crusade against lynching than any other was Ida May Wells. At the early age of 19, as editor of the Memphis Free Press, she began her campaign against lynching. Threatened by white supremacists, if she continued her exposure of lynchings, She defied them, but took care always to carry two pistols for protection. In 1892, she published an article revealing that the lynching of three successful Negro grocers was the work of their white competitors. Her press was destroyed, and she would have been lynched had she not been in Philadelphia covering a convention. Miss Wells went to Chicago, where she joined the Chicago Conservatory, and then lectured throughout the northern part of the United States and in Europe on lynching. She was among the first to point out the falsity of the charge of rape as explaining lynching. In 1894, she published A Red Record, the first book to document the crime of lynching. A year later, she married Ferdinand Lee Barnett of Chicago, lawyer and later first Negro assistant state's attorney in Illinois. In 1898, she was the spokesman for a delegation of women and congressmen to President McKinley to protest the lynching of a Negro postmaster. An active member of the Niagara Movement, she was also one of the signers of the call for the National Negro Conference in 1909, and later... We're going to have a website out, uh, floridasrosaparks.org, and we'll have more information about the events that we're planning. We hope see many of you there and more information about the history. Um, many people know if I get started on the history, I can be here all day. So I have learned over the 25 years how to condense it and then refer you to other materials. Um, no, I did that a few years afterwards. Went to the county commission and they agreed to do the renaming. Uh, Interestingly, before that, it was called Quarters Road, and it's part of that history and legacy of uh, times past that it that it had that name. But this is a far more appropriate name. Is this the Pastor Connie that you? Yes. I'm going to introduce Pastor Connie and Reverend Okay. When you when you got certified? Yes. That was one of the pictures after when he was in the year. Earl. I don't know if it was the same year he was admitted, but somewhere in the good years before they started attacking 
his career, uh, that picture was taken. And then that's, I believe that's the one that we've had on the T-shirt as well. Let me, let me introduce He He was born uh, down the street a little bit. He lived uh, in Leesburg at the time. Okay. I'd like to introduce two people. First, I'd like to introduce Reverend David Connolly, a member of the Virgil Hawkins Foundation, he has been five-time mayor of Leesburg, 14 years on the commission, and a hard worker. During that time, he was pastoring in Leesburg, and we would have a lot of events there. And he worked hard along with Harley and the family with the T-shirts and all of the events that we had. So I'd like to introduce to you Reverend David Connolly. morning. I think one of the essential questions today is, can any good thing come out of Oklahoma? Yes. It can. I was privileged. It's been how many years? 25? 25 since Oh, my God. Yeah. We'll be February, 25 years. I was privileged uh, some years ago to serve as the pastor of Stephen A.M.E. Church in Leesburg, where Attorney Hawkins was a member. I was also privileged to eulogize Attorney Virgil Hawkins, which was a very gala uh, here in Leesburg because it was well attended. It was a ceremony that lasted approximately four and a half hours, but nobody left because they knew that a good man who had been born, who died, who had left us, left such a great legacy here in Lake County. At that time, I was, I was serving as a mayor commissioner of Leesburg, where I served for 14 years. And Attorney Virgil Hawking was a man that gave off the whole impetus to proceed and to have this particular monument done today. And we want to thank Attorney Holland Herman because he worked so hard. Yeah. Uh, we spent many nights. We made many trips to, uh, to Daytona along with Harriet in order for us to establish something that would honor a man who gave for months. This, we felt, was the least that we can do to show our appreciation to one whose work, whose name, was a legacy. Even though he died way back in 1988, he realized that Oklahoma, Leesburg would never be the same had it not been for Attorney Virgil Hawkins. We we honor his name in Oklahoma. We we honor his we honor his memory, and we are so grateful today that this experience had the opportunity to come through Oklahoma, so you can witness and experience the greatness of a great man. So we appreciate you coming. May God bless you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And last but not least, I'd like to uh, introduce to you uh, the pastor of the home church of Virgil Hawkins, the Bethel AME Church. It's Reverend Ernestine Abner. She uh, not only is the pastor, but she actually knew Virgil Hawkins. And during that time, we adopted her into the family. So I introduce to you our pastor and our family member, Reverend Ernestine Abner. Good morning, good morning, good morning. It is a pleasure to be the pastor of the church, the home church. It's a pleasure to have known of Roger Hawkins, a man that was a comical man. He kept us laughing all the time at all the reunions or whatever we attended. And it is a pleasure to just uh, be part of the Hawkins family, to pastor the Hawkins family, 
and the Conley family and to be a part of this great event. I was here for the funeral. I was here for many of the events. And I'm so glad to have you guys here today to celebrate with us. And we hope on the 25th anniversary in February that we do a big bang celebration because it will be 25 years. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Uh, Attorney Herman Herman is the president of the foundation uh, for Virgil Hawkins, and we have him with us, and you uh, right now being interviewed on national radio. And uh, Leslie uh, just is right there. And uh, Leslie, go ahead and go ahead and uh, ask uh, away with Attorney Herman. Hello. Uh, what is it um, that has enabled you to be so passionate about preserving the history of the man Virgil Hall? It was the fact that I got to know him at the, at the end of his life when he was a fellow attorney. We had cases where we were on either side of it. And rather than finding a man who justifiably could have been bitter, I found a pillar of strength that could look beyond what had been done to him and look towards the future. He treated me uh, with respect as a fellow attorney, and I knew him as a good man. And when I saw the, at the end of his life he was treated as an outcast and as somebody who should not be honored, I just couldn't let it stay that way. I was sure that if somebody didn't start something to restore his reputation, that he'd be lost in history. And for the national listening audience, let them know the significance of Virgil Hawkins. He was the man who opened the University of Florida and ultimately all of the universities of the state, but did it with a nine-year struggle where the Florida Supreme Court defied the U.S. Supreme Court. And unlike many of the individuals who integrated universities in the South, the only way that he could do this was in the end to give up his right to admission in exchange for an order that would let others be admitted. So he not only endured the threats and destruction of his life for those nine years, but at the end, the thing that he had wanted since he was six years old, he gave up so that others would get that opportunity. And as a direct result of the role he played in Florida, what universities came on the scene of action? Basically, every public university in the state of Florida uh, was integrated as a result of uh, his effort, even though the order only pertained to the law school at the University of Florida. And uh, we we had an event last month celebrating 50 years from when the first black law student graduated. There literally are thousands of people who were able to get in because he started something that would have probably taken another decade, and the events like we saw at University of Alabama a half decade later before Florida would have uh, agreed to admit him. Can you explain the whole thing about the Florida bar test? <laughs> well, the thing with the Florida bar was that um, had he been admitted to the university when he was entitled to, he would have automatically become a member of the bar. Mm-hmm. Before, because he gave up his right to admission, mm-hmm. he had to go out of state. 
and go to law school out of state. And he was doing this in his mid-50s. He had been a faculty member at Bethune-Cookman College. When he was at law school, he would scrub toilets at uh, an all-white men's club to earn money for his tuition. He came back to Florida and was told, we don't recognize your law school, and therefore we won't admit you. The way he ultimately got admitted at age 70 takes, about a half an hour to explain, so I'll just say the court was embarrassed into admitting him, but unfortunately he was age 70 at that point, and even the court acknowledged back then, we don't think this is going to work, and tragically it didn't, and even more tragically, the events of his practice led him to disgrace. Okay, we're going to go ahead and take this uh, historic photo here. They want you. They want you to come out. You gotta get down again. The most militant opponent of Booker T. Washington's philosophy of accommodation, a heroic fighter against discrimination, and the person who had more to do with originating and carrying out a crusade against lynching than any other, was Ida May Wells. At the early age of 19, as editor of the Memphis Free Press, she began her campaign against lynching. Threatened by white supremacists, if she continued her exposure of lynchings, she defied them but took care always to carry two pistols for protection. In 1892, she published an article revealing that the lynching of three successful Negro grocers was the work of their white competitors. Her press was destroyed and she would have been lynched had she not been in Philadelphia covering a convention. Miss Wells went to Chicago, where she joined the Chicago Conservator, and then lectured throughout the northern part of the United States and in Europe on lynching. She was among the first to point out the falsity of the charge of rape as explaining lynching. In 1894, she published A Red Record, the first book to document the crime of lynching. A year later, she married Ferdinand Lee Barnett of Chicago, lawyer and later first Negro assistant state's attorney in Illinois. In 1898, she was the spokesman for a delegation of women and congressmen to President McKinley to protest the lynching of a Negro postmaster. An active member of the Niagara Movement, she was also one of the signers of the call for the National Negro Conference in 1909 and later a founder of the NAACP. Mrs. Wells Barnett delivered the following address at the 1909 conference. The lynching record of a quarter of a century merits the thoughtful study of the American people. It presents three salient facts. First, lynching is color line murder. Second, crimes against women is the excuse, not the cause. Third, It is a national crime and requires a national remedy. Proof that lynching follows the color line is to be found in the statistics which have been kept for the past 25 years. During the few years preceding this period and while frontier lynch law existed, the executions showed a majority of white victims. Later, however... As law courts and authorized judiciary extended into the far west, lynch law rapidly abated, 
and its white victims became few and far between. Just as the lynch law regime came to a close in the West, a new mob movement started in the South. This was wholly political, its purpose being to suppress the colored vote by intimidation and murder. Thousands of assassins banded together under the name of Ku Klux Klans, Midnight Raiders, Knights of the Golden Circle, etc., etc., and spread a reign of terror by beating, shooting, and killing colored people by the thousands. In a few years, the purpose was accomplished, and the black vote was suppressed. But mob murder continued. From 1882, in which year 52 were lynched, down to the present, lynching has been along the color line. Mob murder increased yearly until in 1892 more than 200 victims were lynched and statistics show that 3,284 men, women, and children have been put to death in this quarter of a century. During the last 10 years from 1899 to 1908 inclusive, the number lynched was 959. Of this number, 102 were white, while the colored victims numbered 857. No other nation, civilized or savage, burns its criminals. Only under the stars and stripes is the human holocaust possible. 28 human beings burned at the stake one of them a woman and two of them children, is the awful indictment against American civilization, the gruesome tribute which the nation pays to the color line. Why is mob murder permitted by a Christian nation? What is the cause of this awful slaughter? The question is answered almost daily, always the same shameless falsehood that Negroes are lynched to protect womanhood. Standing before a Chattaqua assemblage, John Temple Graves, at once champion of lynching and apologist for lynchers, said, The mob stands today as the most potential bulwark between the woman of the South and such a carnival of take. The mob today stands as the most potential bulwark between the women of the South and such a carnival of crime as would infuriate the world and precipitate the annihilation of the Negro race. This is the never-varying answer of lynchers and their apologists. All know that this is untrue. The cowardly lyncher revels in murder, then seeks to shield himself from public execration by claiming devotion to women. But truth is mighty, and the lynching record discloses the hypocrisy of the lyncher as well as his crime. The Springfield, Illinois mob rioted for two days. The militia of the entire state was called out. Two men were lynched, hundreds of people driven from their homes, all because a white woman said a Negro assaulted her. A mad mob went to the jail, tried to lynch the victim of her charge, and not being able to find him, proceeded to pillage and burn the town and to lynch two innocent men. Later, after the police had found that the woman's charge was false, she published a retraction. The indictment was dismissed and the intended victim discharged. But the lynched victims were dead. Hundreds were homeless, and Illinois was disgraced. 
as a final and complete refutation of the charge that lynching is occasioned by crimes against women. A partial record of lynching is cited. 285 persons were lynched for causes as follows. Unknown cause, 92. No cause, 10. Race prejudice, 49. Miscegenation, 7. Informing, 12. Making threats, 11. Keeping saloon, 3. Practicing fraud, 5. Practicing voodooism, 2. Bad reputation, 8. Unpopularity, 3. Mistaken identity, 5. Using improper language, 3. Violation of contract, 1. Writing insulting letter, 2. Eloping, 2. Poisoning horse, 1. Poisoning well, 2. By white caps, 9. Vigilantes, 14. Indians, 1. Moonshining, 1. Refusing evidence, 2. Political causes, 5. Disputing, 1. Disobeying quarantine regulations, 2. Slapping a child, 1. Turning state's evidence, 3. Protecting a Negro, 1. To prevent giving evidence, 1. Knowledge of larceny, 1. Writing letter to white woman, 1. Asking white woman to marry, 1. Jilting girl, 1. Having smallpox, 1. Concealing criminal, 2. Threatening political exposure, 1. Self-defense, 6. Cruelty, 1. Insulting language to women, 5. Quarreling with white men, 2. Colonizing Negroes, 1. Throwing stones, 1. Quarreling, 1. Gambling, 1. Is there a remedy, or will the nation confess that it cannot protect its protectors at home as well as abroad? Various remedies have been suggested to abolish the lynching infamy. But year after year, the butchery of men, women, and children continues in spite of plea and protest. Education is suggested as a preventative. But it is as grave a crime to murder an ignorant man as it is a scholar. True, few educated men have been lynched, but the hue and cry once started stops at no bounds, as was clearly shown by the lynchings in Atlanta and in Springfield, Illinois. Agitation, though helpful, will not alone stop the crime. Year after year, statistics are published, meetings are held, resolutions are adopted, and yet lynchings go on. Public sentiment does measurably decrease the sway of mob law, but the irresponsible, bloodthirsty criminals who swept through the streets of Springfield beating an inoffensive, law-abiding citizen to death in one part of the town, and in another, torturing and shooting to death a man who for three score years had made a reputation for honesty, integrity, and sobriety, had raised a family, and had accumulated property, were not deterred from their heinous crimes by either education or agitation. The only certain remedy is an appeal to law. Lawbreakers must be made to know that human life is sacred and that every citizen of this country is first a citizen of the United States and secondly a citizen of the state in which he belongs. This nation must assert itself and defend its federal citizenship at home as well as abroad. The strong men of the government must reach across state lines whenever unbridled lawlessness defies state laws and must give to the individual citizen under the stars and stripes the same measure of protection which it gives to him when he travels in foreign lands. Federal protection of American citizenship is the remedy for lynching. Foreigners are rarely lynched in America. If by mistake one is lynched, the national government quickly pays the damages. The recent agitation in California against the Japanese compelled this nation to recognize that federal power must yet assert itself to protect the nation from the treason of sovereign states. Thousands of American citizens have been put to death, and no president has yet raised his hand in effective protest. But a simple insult to a native of Japan was quite sufficient to stir the government at Washington to prevent the threatened wrong. 
If the government has power to protect a foreigner from insult, certainly it has the power to save a citizen's life. The practical remedy has been more than once suggested in Congress. Senator Gallinger of New Hampshire, in a resolution introduced in Congress, called for an investigation with the view of ascertaining whether there is a remedy for lynching which Congress may apply. The Senate committee has under consideration a bill drawn by A.E. Pillsbury, formerly Attorney General of Massachusetts, providing for federal prosecution of lynchers in cases where the state fails to protect citizens or foreigners. Both of these resolutions indicate that the attention of the nation has been called to this phase of the lynching question. As a final word, it would be a beginning in the right direction if this conference could see its way clear to establish a bureau for the investigation and publication of the details of every lynching so that the public could know that an influential body of citizens has made it a duty to give the widest publicity to the facts in each case, that it will make an effort to secure expressions of opinion all over the country against lynching for the sake of the country's fair name. And lastly, but by no means least, to try to influence the daily papers of this country to refuse to become accessories to mobs either before or after the fact. Several of the greatest riots and the most brutal burnt offerings of the mobs have been suggested and incited by the daily papers of the offending community. If the newspaper which suggests lynching in its accounts of an alleged crime could be held legally as well as morally responsible for reporting that threats of lynching were heard, or it is feared that if the guilty one is caught, he will be lynched, or there were cries of lynch him, and the only reason the threat was not carried out was because no leader appeared. A long step toward a remedy will have been taken. In a multitude of counsel, there is wisdom. Upon the grave question presented by the slaughter of innocent men, women, and children, there should be an honest, courageous conference of patriotic, law-abiding citizens anxious to punish crime promptly, impartially, and by due process of law. Also to make life, liberty, and property secure against mob rule. Time was when lynching appeared to be sectional, but now it is national, a blight upon our nation, mocking our laws and disgracing our Christianity. With malice, toward none, but with charity for all. Let us undertake the work of making the law of the land effective and supreme upon every foot of American soil, a shield to the innocent and to the guilty punishment, swift and sure. Good evening and blessings, and welcome to another installment of the Gifts for Freedom of State. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author, Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight. And we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. If I say the name Virgil Hawkins, just to show a hand how many people actually 
have heard the name, a website with a lot more information on it under the domain name of floridasrosaparks.org. We hope to have that up by Christmas. And that really is who Virgil Hawkins is. He is the man who, for nine years, refused to give up his right to a seat at the University of Florida, and ultimately did give up that right after nine years so that others could enter the door, not just that university, but that, uh, at every university in the state of Florida. Uh, I did not intend to be involved in this history. I came to Leesburg about two years into my legal career just to open up a practice uh, and begin to move towards where most attorneys do, which is prosperity and by this time, <laughs> retirement. And, and my late wife fully well expected that that's where things were headed and where it was headed. And I say fortunately, my life intersected with the life of Virgil Hawkins just because he ended up on the other side of cases. He and I both started practicing law at the same time. Virgil Hawkins is forgotten in some respects because even though his dreams were killed, um, he didn't die. But he faced death on a constant basis as well as the members of his family, some of whom you'll meet tomorrow, who lived through that period of time in Lake County where Willis McCall ruled, uh, and he managed to survive. But it cost him virtually everything, including the fact that to keep his wife from ending up as Harriet T. Moore did, uh, he had to divorce her, and uh, they could get remarried later on. But if she was associated with him, uh, she probably would have ended up dead. And basically, one of the reasons why Mr. Hawkins' crusade has national significance is that Florida, unknown to most people, was the Fort, Fort Sumter of uh, the second civil war in this country that still has not ended. But it was the first time that a state openly said to the federal government, we will not respect your decisions, and if you don't like the fact that we're going to openly defy you, not once, but three times, defying three direct U.S. Supreme Court decisions, come on down here, arrest our governor, arrest our legislators, arrest the um, head of uh, the universities in the state, and but for the fact that Mr. Hawkins decided at the end of nine years to give up his right to an education so they could say, well, at least we got something out of this. In all likelihood, it would have been the governor of this state and not the governor of the state of Alabama who would have been removed from the steps of the University of Florida so that the first uh, black student could be admitted. And it's part of how Mr. Hawkins became the individual that he did because this was one of the strategic lawsuits 
the Thurgood Marshall and the NAACP Legal Defense Fund had decided to bring in the Deep South states. And he knew that there was just one individual as a plaintiff that that person would be targeted. And so he started the lawsuit with five individuals within a very short period of time after the bombing of Harry T. Moore's house and his assassination. Everybody dropped out of that lawsuit except Virgil Hawkins. And the very calamity that Thurgood Marshall hoped to prevent, which was to have one individual singled out, ended up occurring. And that occurred for the remainder of that decade. And the power structure at the time was sure that they could get to him. They first tried to bribe him. They offered him an education at any law school he wanted to go to in the entire United States except, of course, the University of Florida. They created a whole law school for him. The Fannie Law School was not created to educate black lawyers. And in fact, as soon as the desegregation order was entered, they began the process of dismantling that law school because they no longer needed it for its purpose, which was to be able to say to the United States Supreme Court, well, now we have separate facilities. The theory of the Hawkins case was not that we had separate but unequal facilities. It was that you have no facilities for black students. Therefore, you've got to let them into the one facility you have. And the University of Florida and the Supreme Court of Florida said, no problem. We'll open a law school. If you go to the FAMU archives, you'll find a telegram that was sent to Virgil Hawkins saying, congratulations, you've been admitted to the FAMU Law School. It didn't exist at the time. They admitted him. He never applied, but they admitted him. And they were actually willing to let him attend the University of Florida until the FAMU Law School was created. So his case becomes the only instance that we know of where a state proposed integration as a way of preserving segregation. But it's there within the text of the cases that we set up the school. We know it's not open yet, so he can go to the University of Florida as a FAMU student, but pretend he's not there. And then when we finally get the school open, he'll be able to go. This has been his dream since he was six years of age. We want to understand why Mr. Hawkins is the poster child for the slogan, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. At six years of age, he wandered into a courtroom in Lake County, saw a group of black prisoners being brought up on charges of penny ante poker, being sentenced to six months of hard labor, which meant that they got to work out in the fields, as Willis McCall had intended. And the six-year-old, in his mind, having never seen a black attorney, not really knowing what an attorney was, realized there had to be an attorney there. These people needed his help, and he was determined to do that, even though everybody, including people within the community where he lives, said, don't you know who you are? 
This is not something that a black child can aspire to. Nothing would deter him. And that was the reason he became the plaintiff in the lawsuit, is he truly wanted to go to law school. But as I say, the U.S. Supreme Court, right at the time of Brown versus Ford, said, we decided this issue already. And actually they had. I have a decade before the Texas case decided that you couldn't create a separate law school. You had to admit to the established school. And they said, look, just follow our precedents long established. And the Florida Supreme Court said no. Amazingly, two of the justices, even though all at the time were elected, we didn't have merit retention back then, they would stand for election for somebody who could say, look at that opinion that they wrote. They don't belong on the bench. Had the courage to say, we don't believe in integration either. But we're sworn to an oath to obey the Constitution of the United States. And the Constitution of the United States says that when a higher court speaks, we must obey. Mr. Hawkins, at that point, became the sole issue of the governor's campaign for election. Three candidates had gone to the voters to show how they would do a better job than their opponents in keeping Mr. Hawkins out of the law school. Sole primary issue of the governor's campaign. Though he's known as a moderate today, when he ran for office, Governor Collins said that he would convene, and these are his words, not my description, a conference of war of the southern states. And that's why I say this truly was the beginning of a second civil war to prevent the integration of Florida schools. And they put every bit of economic pressure on him, every bit of public threats. The family, who you'll meet tomorrow, would talk about the fact that he had a brother that looked almost like him, a couple years older. And they used to joke about how Mr. Hawkins' hair had turned gray, and he looked older than his brother. And Virgil's answer was, well, when you sleep at night, you sleep in your bed. When I sleep at night, I sleep under my bed. And if the house is high enough, I sleep under the house. The Ebony article talks about how police officers in Daytona Beach, because he was a faculty member at Bethune-Cookman College, would go up in the streets in the black community calling out for Virgil Hawkins to let it be known that he was found on the streets and was going to be arrested. And this is what he endured for a nine-year period of time. There are stories of both, and Beverly had talked about third remarks along their house. There are stories that supposedly in areas very close to here, where third remarks and Virgil Hawkins hid under houses at night because the Klan was out looking for them. And for most of our civil rights heroes, we have the incidents where this occurred at some point in their efforts. Understand that this man did this and did it alone for a nine-year period of time. And at the end of his struggle, a federal judge who had been set to retire, but when he heard that Eisenhower might appoint 
a liberal judge in this place and that integration with the energy stayed on the bench and tried to prevent uh, that order from ever being entered. He came up with one last-ditch solution. He said, well, I'm prepared to enter an order right now because the, the higher courts are telling me I've got to enter an order of integration. But it appears now that they have a question about whether Mr. Hawkins is qualified. And understand when the first decisions were rendered about Mr. Hawkins, the court specifically said, we find Virgil Hawkins qualified in every way for admission except race. When the U.S. Supreme Court said, well, if race is your only disqualifying factor, then you have to admit him, then suddenly, well, we don't think he's qualified. And one of the ways that they came up with to find him not qualified is they retroactively changed the admission standards using uh, a score that was higher than his score on the LSAT as the new retroactive standard for all outstanding applications, of which his was the only outstanding application. And understand that at that time, if you got into law school, there was no bar exam if you went to a Florida school. And it was a very convenient way of making sure there would only be white lawyers. Because if you were if you were a black student who wanted to go to law school, the state would pay for you to go somewhere else outside of Florida. But then you came back and said, well, you didn't go to a Florida school. So you got to take a bar exam. And oh, by the way, you didn't pay. Whereas for graduates of the University of Florida, there are pictures of, here's the graduates, and then the next picture in the caption underneath says, and then the graduates went into this room, and they all had their hand raised and were sworn into the bar. It was an automatic given, uh, and they changed the rules to now say, he's not qualified, we've got to litigate his credentials. At this point, he was, 50 years of age, he had started around 40, and he could well have had a career if they admitted him as they were supposed to at the beginning of this. And here he had waited another nine years, having waited since he was six years old to get to this point. And he made the decision that it was more important that somebody get in than that he get in, and he gave up his right to that. You know, when I learned that about him, my thought was, this is not just a great civil rights individual. This is an American of such unusual personal integrity that his story has to be known. Because if one person can do that, maybe he can inspire others. I met him at the end of his life when virtually his opportunity for any portion of his dream was gone. And what I expected when I first encountered him was a bit, I find a bitter man. I find an angry man. I find a man who resented me because I had everything that he wanted. And I didn't have to work for it. I just enrolled in school, graduated, and it was there. And what I found instead was a man who did not allow what had been done to him to destroy the man inside. Um, he was kind to me. He would even talk to me and say, young fellow, how's your practice doing? 
you just keep working at this. It's a great career. And it just blew me away. Here's a man that I know was struggling. I got all the advantages. Why does he care about me? But that's who he was. And when I saw him a few months before the stroke that he had that ultimately took his life, at that point in time, they had managed to throw him out of the bar. They had managed to completely disgrace him and put him at a point of complete impoverishment. And again, I thought at that point I was going to find a broken and bitter man. I was thinking as I came up to him, I had to try to find some way to say some words of encouragement. It wasn't necessary. He was unbroken. He was telling jokes that I was laughing at because he could see beyond everything. He knew the legacy that he had left. Um, his last public act was to chair a committee for the city of Leesburg. They had created a mural that was supposedly to depict the history of the city of Leesburg. The one African-American individual on the mural was a young child eating a slice of watermelon. And the commissioners in the city could not understand why the NAACP and Virgil Hawkins and others were objecting to it. But since they were upset about it, they were going to convene a commission to go ahead and decide how we can change this image so that everybody will stop complaining about it. And what they came up with is really Mr. Hawkins' last message to us, saying this is what it was all about. He took the image that basically was him when he was in the field and everybody was telling him, you can't do anything. He was one of the people picking water out. And what it was replaced with is a young child dreaming of different career possibilities. He understood that's what the struggle was about. He understood that was more important than whether he ever had those possibilities. And as I said, what motivated me was the fact that it was very clear the way this history was written in terms of it. And then he had these problems and ended up out of the profession and so forth, that that was the last we were ever going to hear of him. And that was not the man I knew. That was not the man that should inspire others to greatness of all races. And that was the point that basically changed my life. I didn't expect that that would occur. I told my late wife, I'm just going to do this. It's going to fail. But having said it, somebody will find it. It may take decades. It may take generations. Somebody will find what I did and realize I was right. And to my surprise, Within 10 months of his death, the Florida Supreme Court did something that had never been done anywhere in the world, which was to posthumously restore his membership in the Florida Bar. It was done because his last statement to the Florida Bar when they were going after his license was, I want to go to heaven as a member of the Bar. Mm. And while well, we didn't get you that way,
Ten months after he entered, he was back with them in Florida. I then went to the University of Florida and asked them to name the clinic after the place where I was educated, but a place that could carry on his work in his name, which is what would have happened if he was able to practice when he was younger, because that's what most lawyers do. They leave on a firm that bears their name. And the university said no. And Carrie Meek, who went on to be a congresswoman and the son ran for state senator, um, sponsored the bill, got so emotional on the floor of the Florida Senate that she actually got to the point that she couldn't even speak anymore. But the bill passed. The university was still opposed, and that's how we ended up with the monument. Um, is that I thought, well, if they won't do what's right, then we're going to go back to his hometown where he's appreciated and do what the university should do. I'm pleased, however, to tell you that it only took 25 years <laughs> to get to a point where last month there was a huge celebration on the university campus wow. for both he and the man who became the first graduate and acknowledged it never would have happened without Mr. Hawkins were honored. And uh, a lot has changed. Undergraduate students are clamoring for more recognition on We have him recognized on the, on the law school campus. They're now pushing for some of the names that are up there to be changed over to his name. And, and as I say, the, we are coming to the point that I hope so. Change is possible, and sometimes one step can move things in another direction. <coughs> And as I say, from my standpoint, I'm grateful. I would have had a different life. Uh, it would not have had the internal wealth that's gained from seeing the right thing actually be accomplished and knowing that you had a part of it. So I look forward tomorrow to uh, showing you the monument that was created, giving you a little history, how it happened, giving you a chance to meet the family members. And I'm very grateful that you're all here today. About the heritage tour, I have Dr. Sherry Dupree on the line. Dupree, could you please describe to the audience what we're doing and why we're doing it? Uh, yes, we are doing an African-American tour, and this tour is being sponsored by UNESCO TST, which is a transatlantic slave trade, also the state of Florida, uh, task force members, also um, black colleges within the state of Florida. And we're working together to infuse African-American history into our classes, and we are infusing it into all subject fields,
Representative Geraldine Thompson, Florida Representative Geraldine Thompson with us. Uh, we have, I'm at the uh, Harry T. Moore Museum, and we have Wanda Barton, and we also have Annette Siki, and she is with the Florida Task Force and UNESCO. Aren't there young people that are on the buses with you? Yes, we do have youth. We have a total of 15 youth, high school, middle, and a few elementary students. Most of these are honor students or students on uh, student government and other activities within their school. And they are here to help us to understand what we are talking about and give us feedback from what they have learned. Wonderful. Okay, so um, let's begin with your first guest. Could you introduce her? Oh, yes. Okay, the first guest I'm going to introduce is Representative Geraldine Thompson, representing the state of Florida. Okay. Hello, Ms. Thompson. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? Great. Uh, it sounds like you guys are doing a phenomenal job. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself. I represent the Orlando area in the Florida legislature. I am the first African-American female uh, to represent that area in the Florida House of Representatives. I am also the founder of the Wealth Built Museum of African-American History and Culture. So I have done uh, research, I have documented the history of African-Americans in Orlando. And in every community there is someone or an organization that does that. And it's very important to get that information out to the general uh, population. And I, that's what we uh, expect to accomplish with the well, how did you come about learning about uh, this organization? And just give me a, a, a brief... This particular organization? Right. In this event, how did you uh, come about... Thank you. 
let's make this a, a little bit more personal. Um, as a youth, in your experience as a student, what was it like when you had to learn history or social studies? And what is it that you would like to see um, as, a, as a difference being made today in the classroom? When I was a, a young girl, I attended segregated schools. I attended Robert Russell Moton Elementary School in uh, South Dade County in Perrine. And I learned that uh, Robert Russell Moton was affiliated with the uh, Tuskegee Airmen in uh, Alabama. There is a Moton Field where the Tuskegee Airmen trained. And so there was a, a, a pride in being a student at Robert Russell Moton, so I knew who he was. I attended high school at Mays High School that was named for Dr. Benjamin Mays, who was president of Morehouse College, and he was one of the mentors of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. So we were uh, instilled, it was instilled in us a pride for the accomplishments of African-American people. And what happened when I had children, and they were in the public schools here in the state of Florida, they did not get this information. And so I would uh, have to provide the information to them when they were at home. And then when my children got of age in middle school and high school, I said to them, you need to suggest to your teacher, you need to suggest to your principal that there be some uh, celebration or recognition of African-American history, and I want you to volunteer to lead that effort. And so uh, we, we were activists in terms of making sure that wherever they went to school, that they not only uh, had the information, but they were able to share it with other people. But it, it shouldn't be the responsibility of a child to lead adults. And mm -hmm. so my thinking was the adults at these schools need the, to be the people who are uh, bringing this information to the students. Now, when Brown versus the Board of Education uh, happened, do you think that the goal was to demolish all of these schools that you just mentioned and still pride in history? Or was it really to just say, give us equal taxation, give us the same amount of funding as you do to white schools? What is your take on that? And if you could reform education, would you uh, rebuild your schools, the schools that you went to, and say, let's start all over? I, I'm not saying we want to segregate it, but these schools should be restored and funded equally. Well, the goal of the Civil Rights Movement was to achieve inclusion and diversity within public education. Unfortunately, the way that leaders at that time thought that they had to achieve that goal was through closing all of the African-American schools and busing our children out of their communities into other uh, neighborhoods and not uh, appreciating or celebrating their culture and where they had come from. And I think that was misguided, and I think that we are uh, reaping, unfortunately, uh, some of the problems that we're having now as a result of that thinking back in the, in the 60s. And I, I, I'll admit that I, I have a very soft spot when it comes to the closing of these historical schools. We have a school in New Jersey, Bordentown School, founded by ex-slave, um, pattern after Tuskegee, and it's now a prison. And most of the people inside of the town walk by this uh, juvenile detention center and have no clue of 
of the history of the school. So, you know, I, I think, you know, for one, I would like that school restored back to uh, the way it was intended to be used. Uh, do you have I think if we make an investment in, in young people and equip them uh, with knowledge and information uh, and build their self-esteem, we can redirect some of the resources that we're putting into juvenile detention. I think it's a matter of uh, pay up front or pay on the back. If you pay up front, then you have productive citizens. If you pay on the back, you're warehousing people, you're paying to incarcerate them, and a large segment of the African-American population in Florida, uh, Texas, and a lot of other places are incarcerated. And uh, I think that's because many times they don't know who they are. They don't know their history. And so this particular tour and this particular project is so important so that our young people can be involved academically, not only in sports, but academically in everything that uh, goes on and everything that's available to them in, in this country. And we can redirect the resources that we're using in states like Florida to keep people in prison to give them marketable job skills so that they can have gainful employment. Wonderful. Right. Um, I know there's someone else, and I'm enjoying this conversation, but I don't want to be rude to. Uh, yes. <laughs> um, I'm Dr. Annette Keshi. Um, I'm a professor of comparative African and African diaspora language, history, and culture. I'm also a member of the State of Florida Task Force on African American History, a member of the UNESCO USA Project uh, called TST, an education project uh, to break the silence about the transatlantic slave trade uh, because people find it very difficult to engage the horrors of the slave trade. Mm. But we must deal with it and look at that legacy. I'm also a member of the Federal Gullah Geechee Cultural Heritage Corridor Commission. I am an alternative elect for the state of Florida. Uh, so this has been um, an exciting um, adventure. As a matter of fact, the complete title of our tour, African American Heritage Tour, an educational adventure. Mm. I'm co-chairing this particular project with uh, Ms. Sherry Dupree. Wonderful. Now, I'm very interested in Bella. Could you explain exactly what it is, and I know we only have a short period of time, but there's something very unique and divine about how the Gullah people were able to preserve their African traditions. Now, um, let me see if I understand your, your question. You think there's something unique and divine about the achievements of African people after having survived uh, the Holocaust of slavery? Is that correct? Yes. Is that what you're asking me? That is true, but even so, more so with the Gullah Nation. Oh, the Gullah. Okay, I understand. Yes, well, the uh, the reason that the uh, Gullah Geechee culture has uh, been able to retain so many aspects of their African heritage uh, is basically because of the isolation along the Sea Island uh, corridor of North Carolina, South Carolina, 
extended what we consider the Gullah Geechee Corridor to include St. Augustine, Florida, because of the fact that it was a haven for those who were escaping from slavery um, out of North Carolina, the Carolinas uh, and Georgia. Uh, at the time, Florida was Spanish Florida, and if those uh, Africans who managed to escape could get there, uh, the Spanish crown would award them their freedom. Just a few little caveats, though. Uh, a person had to declare allegiance to the Catholic Church and often had to agree to man the fort. So there were African people who, in alliance with Native Americans uh, that we call the Seminoles, a mixed group of, of uh, Native Americans who also were running away from the encroachment of Europeans into their territories, uh, allied themselves with African people who had escaped. And they fought, in fact, together uh, two Seminole Wars. Uh, George, uh, General Jessup, in fact, said that the Seminole War was not an Indian war, but really a Negro war. This is how he described it to the president. And, and uh, there is one other person uh, also. I understood that you said you were running out of time. No, I'm not running out of time. Okay, great. Uh, I know uh, Ms. Dupree had mentioned that you guys have to get back on the bus. Right. <laughs> so I'm not, I don't want you to get left behind. Right, but oh no, we won't get left behind because we um, have with us also Ms. Juanita Barton. And she is uh, the curator and the director of a very important museum that we had to bring the students to. Uh, a very solemn uh, part of American and African American history. Uh, where we have brought the tour participants to honor one of the uh, first martyrs of the modern civil rights movement. This is Ms. Juanita Barton. Thank you. Hello. Hello, Ms. Barton. Um, it sounds like you're doing some incredible work. Uh, would you like to go into depth about your experience on this trip and you know how you got involved and why you think it's so important? I think you asked me how did I get involved why do you think it's so important? Why do I think it's so important? Right. Uh, I heard the word earlier, infusion. Mm -hmm. We bring a piece that very few people know about. We bring a piece to Harriet, Harriet D. Moore, who were the first civil rights leaders, really, to uh, be assassinated, uh, simply because they were trying to set up avenues for equality as far as education was concerned, the justice system was concerned, education was concerned. Uh, so they are the pre-Martin pre Luther King group of people. So many times we forget that there were people before Martin Luther King. Is that a, is that a coincidence or is that by um, by design that we forget that we think it's all about Martin King? Hmm, I'm not sure how to answer that. Of course, we want to keep people, uh, uh, that could be a political bomb. All right, next question, next question. Let's move on to the next question. Just by design. Okay. We're talking earlier about the children and knowing their history. If I leave you out of the history of what happened and what made this country great, then you don't know your back. Right. Water. Yeah, she's drinking the water now. Okay. And we're asking the young people 
remember this. When you know your history, you know your greatness. And even more, when you know your history, you know yourself. And that is a quote from the eminent historian John Henry Clark. Mm. Right. So I, I think Ms. Barton may be ready now. Oh, uh, okay. Okay. I hope so. But she put it very well. Knowing your history is very important because, like, it's, like she said, when you know your history, you know who you are. And like uh, earlier I was saying that sometimes we are being taught that when we came here, we came here with nothing to offer. But when we came, we brought to the table enough to make it a banquet and rather than just a regular meal. Right. Our children need to know that almost everything that happened, the economic growth of this country, uh, the development of this country, came on the backs of the slaves who brought the skills to this country Wonderful. in order to make that happen. Right. So um, many students believe that, you know, a slave is a slave and it was all about manual labor. Can you explain why that is not true? I'll explain that to why that is not true because understanding the fact that when they came, they were the ones who taught people how to grow cotton, how to cook, how to uh, grow the rice that they grew, how to uh, grow herbs and plants for medicinal purposes. So they were an integral part of the development of not only the economic base for this country, but for the health of this country as well. Right. Now, uh, the speaker before you mentioned that the uh, Seminoles were involved. Could you explain the difference between the skill set? You know, we always celebrate um, Thanksgiving with the pilgrims and the Native Americans. If it was solely about labor,
the month of February. But uh, can we talk about the logistics exactly, you know, the stops, um, some of the most intriguing stops or profound stops? Okay. Well, as we wrap up here, uh, on our way back to the bus, okay. we began our trip in the Tampa Bay area. And this was an area where the Maroons had developed settlements. And still today we have all-black towns such as Beesville, where the people are very uh, covetous of their self-determination. We moved from there to the state capital, uh, and we visited um, a museum there which shows some of these in the inventiveness of African people on the campus of Florida A&M University, which is the flagship uh, historical black college and university in the state. We moved from Tallahassee to Jacksonville, uh, where we have Duval and Nassau counties. Uh, we visited Amelia Island and American Beach, where this is, which is part of the Gullah Geechee Coast. And in Jacksonville, we visited one of the oldest colleges in the state of Florida, the Everwaters College, built in 1866 and opened in 1867. We also visited Durkeyville, uh, a very important community where uh, Dr. Johnetta Cole had lived as a child, um, and she is the executive director of the Museum of African Art today. We moved from there to Daytona Beach and visited the grave site and home of Dr. Mary McLeod Bethune. Mm. We, at Mayor at, uh, Bethune-Cookman, uh, Ms. Sherry Dupree gave a presentation on the Rosewood um, Foundation archives because she is an archivist for the Rosewood um, Foundation uh, that commemorates the massacre uh, at Rosewood that they made the movie about. Right. We moved there here to here where we are now in Brevard County where Harry T. Moore was assassinated along with his wife uh, in 1954, 51, sorry. And we're headed now with Representative Geraldine Thompson to Orlando, and she is going to guide us on a tour of the historic black neighborhoods, as well as a tour of the museum that she founded, the Wells-Built Museum of African American History and Culture. There's a special exhibit on African American music, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye.